thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Forget Shark Week. Here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, it's Bomber Month. On the 3rd, 13th, and 23rd of November, we'll feature a different historic bomber from the World War II-era North American B-25 Mitchell and Boeing B-29 Superfortress to the Cold War-era Avro Vulcan. Never mind the announcements. Listener questions can wait. Let's get straight to the bombers with your host, former U.S. Air Force F-16 pilot Trevor Boswell. I'm joined today by Mr. Larry Kelly from the Delaware Aviation Museum Foundation. Larry, welcome to the uh, show. Great, thank you. Well, I'm so glad you were able to uh, join us. I know you're a very busy guy. Obviously, uh, some of our coordination calls and uh, email back and forth. You're literally sitting there turning wrenches and talking about parts and whatnot in the background. So with all that going on and all the stuff that's uh, right around the corner for uh, your organization, let's get right to it. How's that sound? Sounds good. If you own a B-25 and you do your own maintenance, you're a busy guy. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably very true. We will definitely uh, get to uh, the discussion on that. I'm afraid to uh, broach the subject of cost, so we can figure out what the uh, cost per flight hour is, but I don't want to assume that it's going to be uh, going to get an extra value meal at McDonald's cost. But all that being said, let's get started with you, sir. Uh, let's get a little bit of history on uh, you, where you are uh, currently located, where you went to school, and kind of what you're doing these days. You know, you can tell from my accent, you know, that I came from down south. Born and raised in Alabama, Enterprise, Alabama. I went to school at Auburn, uh, became a pharmacist, uh, moved up to the Maryland area in 1971 to work at Johns Hopkins for an internship. And then uh, the assistant director of pharmacy and I left there in 73, went into business for ourself and did that until 1997 when we began to sell off the businesses that we had spent something like 30 years uh, building. But at an early age, my uncle had a little tailor craft that he had bought that had been wrecked in a thunderstorm. And as the old shake and bake commercial says, you know, and I helped with the rebuild. <laughs> when I was 10, 11, 12 years old, the great fun of getting with Uncle Brown and going out to the Enterprise Airport at that time was just a grass airfield near Fort Rucker. Okay. And we'd get in that little tea cart. And as long as I would keep it washed and waxed and clean, of course, these are open-air hangars in a dust belt down South Alabama, all the red clay. So we got washed every week. The old guys around the airport would take me flying if I'd wash and wax airplanes. I had a bicycle. I lived a mile away. So I spent my time at the airport when I could if I wanted picking cotton or helping around the house. Wash and wax airplanes for rides. And we'd get in that little Taylor craft. My uncle, you know, he showed me how to prop it, and I'd prop it. We'd climb seven, 8,000 feet about as much as that little tailor craft would do. And he'd reach over and kill the mag, pull the stick back, kick in a hard rudder, kick it into a spin. We'd spin that thing all the way down to the ground. He'd recover from the spin, kick it out, we'd land. He'd say, get out, start it, let's do it again. <laughs> That's how my flying began. <laughs> That's a good way to get introduced to aviation for sure. Yeah, 
my food budget was $5 a week when I was in pharmacy school. So could really couldn't afford to really get a legal pilot's license until well after my businesses got successful. And uh, so in about the late 70s, I went to Oshkosh with some friends and uh, came back from Oshkosh, said, I got to find a flight instructor and do this right way. Found a flight instructor on September 29th. I took my first orientation flight in a little Cessna 150. Okay. Seven and a half hours later, I bought a 182. And on December 23rd, I took my check ride for private pilot. And that afternoon, threw my family in the airplane, took off to Florida. So that's where it all began. And then uh, began to collect you know, older airplanes. First, at an old UC-78 bamboo bomber that I bought and restored. Flew that for about 600 hours until I allowed a friend to take it to Oshkosh, and he wrecked it. Oh, no. Well, that's a whole story for a whole other podcast. Don't loan your airplanes to friends when they want to show off. <laughs> Good but, advice. You know, Good it, advice. During that process, also bought a little Ronca L-16, and then uh, same time I had a twin Comanche and, and another little Cessna. In, but we were working, building a business, and then someone came along and made us an offer we couldn't refuse. And suddenly, after going through you know a month worth of due diligence and everything else as you go through selling four businesses, I literally woke up on a Monday morning. This is in uh, September 1997. Okay. I literally sat up in bed and suddenly realized I can finally buy the airplane of my dreams, which was a B-25. Oh, wow. So I called my buddy, Tom Riley, who, if you've been around Warbridge and you know the name Tom Riley, he's restored 11 B-25s, B-24, three B-17s, and a whole bunch of other airplanes. Yeah. The XP-82 is his latest you know, restoration. Oh, great. So I called Tom and said, Tom, I want to buy a B-25. What's available? And he said, well, Panchita was available for sale. I said, wow, I know that airplane. Rick Corfone's the airplane. I said, where is it? Well, it's down in Titusville. Who's the broker? Denny Sherman. Okay, give me Denny's phone number. So I literally got up, put my robe on, went to the kitchen table, and I called Denny and asked Denny what was the price. He told me I thought it was reasonable. I said, wow, that's good. He said, but there's a couple of Frenchmen on the way here. They're in the air right now. They're flying over to buy the airplane. They're going to do an inspection and buy the airplane. Well, I don't like to lose, I guess you could say. (laughs) Sure. So when you're in business and it's a competitive business like pharmacy, independent pharmacy especially, I real quickly off the top of my head said, well, call Rick. Ask him, will he take a $10,000 non-refundable cash deposit? Because I asked him, did Frenchman put any money down? No, no money had changed hands. I said, okay. Mm-hmm. Ask Rick, will he take a $10,000 cash non-refundable deposit? If I don't buy the airplane by Friday, he can keep the money. And if I buy it, the money goes toward purchase price. I'll sign a full price contract right now. Oh, so he calls me back about 10 minutes later and says, uh, Rick has agreed to that. I said, what you going to do with the Frenchman? He said, I'll put him up in a hotel. I said, okay. I called Tom in Kissimmee. I said, Tom, how fast can you be in Fort Lauderdale in Denny Sherman's office with a $10,000 cashier's check? <laughs> he said, about two hours. I said, do it. I'll pay you back. Oh, my God. <laughs> so Tom went about a mile and a half to his bank, got a cashier's check, and uh, borrowed a 172 from one of his customers and lit out for Fort Lauderdale and signed the purchase contract, put down the money, signed it as my agent. So now I had till Friday and this is by now it's you know, midday on a Monday. So I started doing the due diligence toward making sure there's no liens on the airplane, all that kind of stuff. So Friday comes around. 
I show up down in Titusville and we're rushing around, we're checking the paperwork, we're going through an inventory of all the spare parts. And, you know, I'm doing the paperwork and everything with Denny Sherman. Tom founds a couple of defects in the airplanes that he needs to fix before we fly it. Okay. And so he's borrowing Denny's airplane, running back and forth over to Kissimmee, getting some parts and tools. So it's getting dark in the afternoon. We finally finished everything. Final checks have been signed. Bill of sale has been signed. I walk out into the hangar. And I had, first time in my life, anxiety like I had never felt before. <laughs> I'm standing in front of an airplane, and I say, Tom, how do you get in it? <laughs> <laughs> I'd never been in one. I'd never flown one. You know, I had a mold engine rating. I had a good bit of time. I had a Seneca, you know. So Tom showed me how to lower the bottom hatch and how to get in the airplane. I said, come on, we got to go. Dude, we're getting dark. I climbed up in the left seat. He climbed in the right seat, and he showed me how to start it. And, of course, at that time, I'm looking at this thing, good Lord of mercy, there's no way in the world I'll ever be able to figure this out or all the switches you got to <laughs> throw in certain sequences and priming. And But we got it started, flew it to Kissimmee, and the next day we flew it to Frederick, Maryland, and like to say the rest is history, so to speak. I've got about 2,400 hours now in uh, it's pilot time in the B-25. I ain't no telling how many thousands of hours in maintenance on the airplane. Man, oh man. Wow, that is a story in itself. <laughs> and that's a fantastic one to share with the audience because it absolutely builds the pure love and dedication you have for this aircraft. And I can just feel it in your voice, the love you have for the B-25 and everything that we're going to be talking about today. So right now, uh, you said the name of the aircraft that you have is Panchito? Yeah. Okay. We will talk specifics about Panchito as we go a little bit further in there. And then obviously the aircraft itself. What are you involved with right now? And how is it that we basically came to you as kind of an expert on the B-25? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I guess you found my name on a sign in the post office. It was a wanted poster, probably. Yeah. We scour, you know, looking for all different types of uh, folks that are experts on various aircraft. And we came across the Delaware Aviation Museum Foundation. And you are a co-founder of that organization. And we'll talk, you know, about the website and, and some of the other uh, aircraft that you have as we uh, go a little bit down the path of the rest of the interview. But what was your motivation for starting well, that organization and how you got to Panchito, obviously, minus the purchase of it? but Well, I uh, collected aviation memorabilia all my life, you know, what I could afford. And as my career became successful, I got sort of a pretty severe addiction it was not to drugs or alcohol or women. It was to, you know, aviation memorabilia from the time period, 1935 to 1945. Okay. For instance, the cedar closet that holds my uniform collection is 10 foot high, 30 foot long, six foot deep, and has three rows of pipes goes across it to hold all the uniforms. My goodness. And parts and pieces and airplanes and uh, all kinds of memorabilia, navigational equipment, flight equipment. Just everything having to do with aviation of that era, I've just been collecting. And so one evening we're sitting around the hangar, and I will have to say adult beverage was possibly involved. Sounds good. Someone said, you ought to start a museum. So we said, you know, we should. So we did. We've got a great group here of volunteers, because there's no way in the world I could do this without a great group of volunteers. You know, dedicate a tremendous amount of time to what we do. So we built a 10,000-square-foot hangar. I thought for, you know, that will certainly suffice for a while. We filled it up in a few months, especially with, you know, 
parts, build a mezzanine in there, fill that up with parts. And we got hangars at some couple of other airports where we got parts stored. But a few other things, you know, old motorcycle, old cars, but mostly vintage aircraft. And with John Kenny, we started the museum and then uh, just began to do community outreach. It really bothers me that so many kids nowadays have no idea of the history of the conflict, you know, the greatest conflict that mankind has ever known, which was World War II. Yep. They don't even understand who the warring parties were or why. Yep. They don't understand the atrocities that were committed. Uh, they don't understand anything at all about the history of such a traumatic time. And we try to keep that alive. We actually are dedicated to that. Like I told Dick Cole one time when we were sitting around one evening, I said, I'll draw my last breath. I will try to keep your story alive because he was that time the last surviving Raider. Yeah. So we do that. We try to help kids understand that a career is not necessarily changing tires at a tire store or flopping burgers or whatever, you know, careers in aviation. We do an aviation education career day here every year. We bring in Air Force recruiters. We bring in Navy recruiters. We bring in uh, instructors from the A&P school you know, on the other end of the airport, yep. from two colleges in Delaware that have aviation programs, whether it be aviation management or air traffic control or pilot flying. Okay. And what we do with these kids is try to introduce them to all the different careers that are available to them in aviation. And if they're interested, it would be a sin to spark an interest in someone and not show them the path and help guide them down the path on how to do it. So if we get someone who's interested in aviation maintenance or flying or whatever, we try to put them with the right people who are then going to help them oversee you know, a career path to get them into that career, whether it be the military, civil aviation, maintenance, whatever it may be. Yeah. We accept volunteers here from the A&P school where they can come and get real-time experience. Because when you fill out an application, what's the first thing an employer wants to know? I had 98 employees when I sold my business. I know what they want to know. What experience do you have? Definitely. Book learning is a beginning. I stood outside the auditorium when I got my pharmacy degree. I stood there and said, my God, what am I going to do? I have no idea what to do because I had no hands-on experience as a pharmacist. I had to learn that the hard way. But anyway, <laughs> the museum has been a tool for us to help spread the word out to kids and help keep alive the story. I've been involved with the Doolittle Raiders intimately for over 20 years. The first reunion I went to was in 1998. We took Jack Sims and his family for a flight into B-25. First time he'd been in a cockpit for 40 years, but he still flew the airplane like a pro. Nice. And then later on, got to know many of the Raiders closely, Sally Crouch, Nolan Herndon, Dave Thatcher, Dick Cole, Tom Griffin, you know, just on and on. Got to know these guys closely, got to spend time with them personally, and was honored to be allowed to uh, arrange many of the reunions. Some of the largest events ever held at the Air Force Museum were events that I'd coordinated. The first event we did there, we had 17 B-25s fly in for the Doola Raider 68th reunion. Oh, incredible. And then for the 70th reunion, we were able to get 20, oh my. 20 B-25s together for the Doola Raider 70th reunion. We had airplanes coming from literally all four corners of the United States. Oh, wow. From Washington State, Southern California, New York, Florida, and everywhere in between. 20 B-25s, all at their own expense because they wanted to be there, all for the right reasons. Yeah. One of the historians at the Air Force Museum 
I didn't make this up. One of them told us that it was the largest public gathering of B-25s since the end of World War II. And the Air Force had resurfaced the old right field runway there so that we could bring the B-25s in for the 68th reunion. And then again, we got 12 more B-25s back for the Doolittle Raider 75th. I see the commemoration, I guess, of Doolittle Raider 75th. They were no longer having reunions after the 71st. Okay. It's been a true honor to be allowed to be involved in coordinating those events. So also at Oshkosh, we many times, your bomber lead up there, we have coordinated the 75th salute to the Doolittle Raiders 75 years after their raid. Okay. That was a big hit at Oshkosh. And uh, do a lot of speaking about the B-25 and World War II and the veterans of that era. I write a column for NATA's magazine, Skylines magazine. Okay about the B-25 and maintenance of the B-25 and try to pass on what I've learned with 23 years of maintaining a B-25. Yep. And, of course, now we have our flight school as well where we teach people how to fly the B-25. Oh, man. That is an amazing list of accomplishments and experience. I think the reader can fully obviously hear the love you have for this aircraft like I've said, but I think this sets the tone for what we're going to talk about here, which is the B-25 itself and obviously your direct firsthand experience of flying the aircraft and your stories that you've gathered over the years from talking to the Raiders and anybody else that's been involved in the B-25 program since you know the end of its active service all the way through today. So with all that, let's get started talking about the aircraft. I know the listeners are very interested to learn a lot about the intricacies of this. So uh, with as much detail as you uh, can provide, Larry, let's get to it. So knowing obviously World War II uh, happened and the B-25 was a critical piece of that conflict. Do you have really any knowledge of the development and the program itself, what the initial requirement for the aircraft was and all that kind of stuff, the timeline, that kind of thing? Yeah. In March of 1939, the uh, Army Air Corps at the time put out specifications for a uh, a medium bomber could carry, if I can remember this right, a payload of 2,400 pounds for 1,200 miles at 300 miles an hour. And that was basically the specification. Okay. So North American responded with what they had at the time, which is the NA-40, which looks sort of like a B-25. This is the first multi-engine airplane North American ever built. Okay. And that evolved into the NA-62, which was their prototype B-25. And, of course, the Martin Aircraft Company responded also with a B-26 Marauder. Right. Both of these aircraft went right into production because Roosevelt, Hap Arnold, General Marshall, they all knew we were going to be in this war that was already raging across Europe. It was just a matter of time. Yeah. So both of these aircraft were put right into production. Right, you know, Contracts were issued for the building of these airplanes before the real prototypes were actually uh, built. Yeah, the NH-62 went right to become the B-25. Okay. It's interesting. The first nine airplanes had a straight dihedral, meaning the wings went upward at a very slight angle from the wing root all the way out to the wingtip. Okay. But the airplanes had a bad Dutch roll. The fourth B-25 ever built is still flying, and it was originally built with a straight wing. These airplanes went to the 17th Bomb Group. They were flying Coastal Patrol off Pendleton, Oregon, but it had a bad Dutch roll. So the engineers with a hunch and a slide rule decided, well, maybe if we take some of the dihedral out, it'll help. That's one thing I always ask our students to do, you know, is kick the airplane into a Dutch roll like a test pilot, then determine how many 
you know, how much oscillations will be to dampen it. Okay. So it literally went to the wing attach angle, which is just outboard of the nacelle. Mm-hmm. So the dihedral from the wing root out to just the outboard side of the nacelle remained the same. They literally just modified the wing to a neutral dihedral from there straight out. And that's what makes it have a gull wing appearance. And the bombardiers loved it from that point. So remember, this airplane, even though its great attribute was not so much as a medium bomber, but later for ground attack, yeah. originally it was a bomber, a medium altitude bomber was what it was being designed for. So with that, the airplanes that already had the straight wing went back to the factory. They were modified to the bent wing. The fourth one that was built, which carries the nose art mishap now, that airplane got the bent wings and it was pulled off the line and modified to a transport and became Half Arnold's personal airplane. Okay. And hence the nose art now that it carries mishap. <laughs> so that was the beginning. It was uh, 1939. And by 1941, by the time of Pearl Harbor, the B-25 was already in service and flying coastal patrol. Okay. That's amazing stuff. So we have the initial uh, design requirements. Uh, we have the, the start of the development of the aircraft. It is flying. It's on its way. Can you talk me through the different variants that the aircraft went through from the early days to kind of where it ended up at the end? We're going to condense that because there were multiple variants because the airplane went through constant modification all the way through its production. Okay. Originally, the B-25 was the first few airplanes that were built, and then there was the B-25A, which was very few, and then the B-25B was the models that the Dula Raiders actually received while they were flying off of Pendleton, Oregon. So when they called for, you know, volunteers for the raid, the B was what they were flying. Yep. So the B model had very little armament for defense. Unfortunately, it had a 30 caliber machine gun in the front that sat in uh, sort of a holster, so to speak, where it clipped on the side of the bombardier's nose. Okay. There's three gimbals in the front where the bombardier could pull the gun out, stick it in a gimbal, tighten it down, hang a can of ammunition on it, put in his ammo, load the gun. Of course, by now, the the airplane you want to shoot at is on the other side. Now you got to pull it out, move it to the other side. <laughs> and a thirty caliber machine gun in the air is like trying to put out a house fire with a water pistol anyway. It's really not very effective. Oh, that's great. So that was the only forward defenses. There was one twin fifty caliber Bendix turret, which was very undependable, but it was a twin fifty caliber turret that was mounted on the top of the airplane just aft of the bomb bay. Okay. And there was a ventral turret in the belly of it that Jimmy Doolittle described. It had a, it was remotely sighted and with a mirror. And Doolittle said it was like trying to shoot skeet with a shotgun over your nose. I mean, over your shoulder, looking through a mirror. <laughs> so you can imagine what that would be like shooting, you know, backwards with a shotgun trying to shoot skeet through a mirror. So Doolittle had them all pulled out. They were very ineffective. It was a lousy design. There was only very few of them even built with the ventral turret, yeah. and other uses were made out of that. Then the C models and the D models were basically the same airplane. The C model was built in California. You know, North America now had a plant in Kansas City that they were building, so the D model production went into Kansas City, and the C and the D was pretty much the same airplane. Okay. And it went through an evolution where they began to continue add armament to it. You know, Pappy Gun was doing modifications over in the Pacific. Other modifications are being done. Package guns are being added to the side of it with 50 caliber guns. Now you're talking real guns with 50 cals. Yeah. And then fixed guns being added to the nose. 
the G model was basically a D model that they cut the nose back, put a 75 millimeter cannon in it, almost the same gun that was used in a Sherman tank. Oh, man. And initially with only 250 caliber guns on the top, 75 millimeter cannon, and then adding package guns on the side. And the turret in the top was still facing aft on the early models, uh, early G models with the cannon. And then the J model production was really a refinement. By the time the J models come around, they were already come up with the strafer nose. Instead of a bombardier's glass nose, yeah, it was a closed-in nose, looked like a P-38 nose or like the A-26 nose. Yeah, like a little pointier and just a bunch of guns. Yeah, the front. same basic profile, but had eight fifty caliber guns, two stacks of four. Yeah. So now start counting. Look at the armament. The B-25 was the heaviest armed bomber of World War II. You could have eight fifty caliber guns in the nose, two on each side in a package gun. So that's eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. The top turret, by the time the J models were built, was moved forward of the bomb bay because you added waste guns by them. And so that countered the weight of the waste guns and the added tail gun, which had two fifty caliber guns. So the turret was moved forward. Okay. So we were eight plus four plus two more in the fifty caliber turret that could be turned forward. So that's eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. 14 50 caliber machine guns for strafing. Good Lord. Plus, as they say, 14 coming and four going because you had two waste guns, one on each side. Yep. Okay. Operated by one operator because there's not room for two waste gunners in a B-25. There's only room for one. Anywhere you stand in a B-25, you can put your hands out and touch both sides of the airplane. Not very big. Skinny, yeah. And a tail gunner had two 50 caliber guns in the tail. So... 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 50 caliber machine guns, plus a 2,000-pound bomb load, plus eight 5-inch HVAR rockets, four rockets under each wing. Oh, my gosh. Bombs, depth charges, machine guns. It was a heavily, heavily armed airplane. I am out of fingers and toes <laughs> trying to count all this weaponry on here. That is incredible stuff. Yeah, and it definitely shows when you look at photos of this aircraft. I was out pretty recently at the New Orleans World War II National Museum, and they have a J model that's out there. And it is no kidding. It looks like a flying tank with all the gun barrels sticking out of that thing. It is an impressive beast. They were, and it was an airplane that could take a lot of damage and still bring home the bacon. There was a story of one airplane. The crew chief called it patches because every time he patched a hole on the airplane, either from flak or bullet holes, you know, the zinc chromate primer at the time was a bright yellow. Okay. So he just painted his metal bright yellow and he put his patches on. And by the end of the war, and I'm going to have to read this just because I don't want to get it right. This is an old C model, 321st Bomb Group. It completed 300 missions. It barely landed six times. It had 400 patched holes on it. <laughs> it was so distorted from battle damage. Wow. Straight and level flight required eight degrees left aileron trim, a six degrees right rudder trim. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. <laughs> so they say the flying fortress would take a lot of, of uh, damage and keep on flying. Well, so would the B-25. That's no joke. Holy cow. Well, obviously, that's a laundry list of different variants. And you talked about the transport version for uh, Hap Arnold. And we have... Uh, our uh, Patreon uh, listeners, and one of them, uh, Jared Asplinth, has asked a question with respect to the naval variant of 
the B25. Can you speak to what the differences, uh, if any, there are between uh, that and what the Army Air Corps was flying at the time? Very little real difference, except the Navy really used their airplanes for anti-shipping okay. and for close air support. The Marines love the B-25. You know, we got a good friend, General George Bartlett, flew 75 combat missions and Marine PBJs. Of course, you know, the Navy, they didn't call it B-25. They call it the uh, PBJ. PB for patrol bomber. J was the abbreviation for North American. So the PBJ. Okay. Very much the same airplane, but the Navy had some, uh, the G models, which had the cannon in them, you know, great for low level attack against shipping. Okay. Yeah. What the Navy and the Marines loved was the rockets under the wing, the five inch HVAR rockets. You got eight rockets under the wing, the cannon in the nose, and then with the machine guns, because you could also have one of the variants, which a lot of them had, was uh, what George had. He had 450 calibers across the top in the nose, across the top of the 75-millimeter cannon. Yep. They had 450-caliber guns you know, on the side, so that gave them eight forward-firing 50-caliber guns. That gave them, with the cannon, uh, of course, they could load it with either uh, parafrags, depth charges, bombs, incendiaries. So for close air support, for ground attack, going out to Japanese airfields in Japanese shipping, yeah, you could take four B-25s, put them up line abreast, and now start counting all the firepower that you can bring to bear on a Japanese destroyer. Oh, man. Four 75-millimeter cannons, 32 50-caliber guns, and by the way, you could skip several 500-pound bombs you know, as you passed over the ship. Yeah. Some of the guys in the 41st Bomb Group flying out of Okinawa during the summer of 1945, Bill Miller, which is where Panchita was flying, yep. Bill Miller told me that when they would roll in, they would go lying abreast and roll in on a Japanese ship. By that time, they were not even return fire. They would start abandoning ship. Oh, man. They saw no return fire. The crew would just start jumping off the ship as they roll in to sink them. Man, they knew. They knew. They'd heard the stories. Well, of course, there wasn't much left of the Japanese Navy at that time, too. Just, yeah. you know, young conscripts with little training. The war was over. Just the Japanese military wouldn't accept it at that point. Yeah, it's more of a saving the face kind of situation. What was the crew complement and the makeup of the people flying this while they were out there in the missions? Well, originally, the early model B-25 did not have a waste gun. Like on the dual Raiders, for instance, you had a bombardier navigator, dual role, one person. You had a pilot and a co-pilot. And you had the engineer gunner. So it was a total of five. Later on, once the waste guns were added, you had the bombardier navigator, the pilot, the co-pilot, the top turret gunner, just like on the early models, you had a top turret gunner. And then you had the waste gunner, which was also the radio operator, and the tail gunner, who was the armorer for the airplane. You know, many roles were dual. In the Army Air Corps and the big heavy bombers, the navigator and the bombardier was not the same person. But in the B-25s and even in the Marine Corps, the navigator bombardier was the same person. The top turret gunner was the uh, engineer. The tail gunner was the armor. The waist gunner was the radio operator. Yeah. A lot of, uh, you know, sharing sharing the duties. And- yeah, and only the dumb pilots had one thing to do. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. A bunch of prima donnas, those pilots. Yeah, just some pilots. Uh, <laughs> let me tell you one real quick story, though. You talk about this. You know, we talk about the air crew. Yeah. I was in an air show a number of years ago, and this one old guy was there in a wheelchair, and he was real proudly. We'd taken one of our fiberglass bombs out for him to sign. Okay. Well, he was ground crew in New Guinea. He said they'd be out there working on them at night. And, 
ding, all of a sudden a new hole will show up in the airplane right next to his head, and he'd just call a sheet metal guy to come repair it. Those Japs were, you know, sniping at him. They're working out there under floodlights, you know, getting the airplanes ready for the next day. Yeah. But he said something to me. Those of you that fly in military airplanes, and you told me what your career was earlier, so you'll you'll appreciate this. Yep. He said, without us, them pilots with just an extra mouth to feed. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Probably most days that's very true of uh, any pilot anywhere. And Gabby Gabreski, who you know was the uh, you know thirty eight kills with P forty sevens in Europe. Yep. Gabby Gabreski, I heard him speak many times, and he would always start out with saying the only reason he was so successful was he never had an abort. He had the best air crew in the Army Air Forces. That is absolutely true. It is a full team effort from the guy that's loading the bombs, filling the tank up with gas, getting the airplane ready to go, the pilot doing the mission prep and uh, and then walking out the door, and every other person that's working to get that aircraft airborne. It is a full team effort and is definitely not lost upon, I think, most any pilot that uh, it's a lot more than just the guy behind the wheel, for sure. So, Larry, the aircraft is not pressurized. Nope based off of having the waste guns and later versions and whatnot. But how was the uh, crew coordination between each of the crew members and what did they use to talk to each other? Well, they did have an intercom system and you've seen some of the old TV movies, you know, with the throat mics. Yeah. Yeah. So they used the throat mics and, or you had the lollipop mics. If you remember what they look like, you're holding your hand, you got the big round, uh, what looked like a lollipop on the end of it. Yeah. But the interphones using the uh, throat mic, because you really can't walk back and forth. The Bombay separates the forward compartment from the rear compartment. Okay. Were they able to even walk through that at all or anything? I think the B-17, you could walk through it, and the B-29, you've got a tube and stuff. But... No. If you were real small, you could crawl over top of the Bombay. Okay. You know, in the movie 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, it's just Dave Thatcher laying across the top of the Bombay, just talking in a normal conversational voice to the guys up front. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's one of the variations. <laughs> they had a ferrying tank on top of the Bombay. They called it a Tokyo tank, big rubber tank that's set up there. So there was no way to get from the aft party airplane to the forward party airplane. It was intercom communication only. All right. Very good. What kind of mission length are we talking about for these aircraft? Obviously, you know, they're not as big as a B-29 or even a B-17, but I know the B-29s were flying around for, you know, 14, 15 hours or something like that. Are we talking that kind of length or is it a little bit shorter? Not quite that, but some of their flights were 12 hours or more, you know, for ferrying the airplanes. The airplanes that went to the Pacific were ferried over from uh, California to Hawaii and then on into the Marshall Islands or other places in the Pacific. Yep. But then it's like any other mission. The more bombs you add, the more ammo you add, the more everything you add, the less fuel range you've got. So the Marines, for instance, many times had removed toward the end of the war when we had air superiority. We'll take the turret out of the airplane. If you take a turret out, you can take out probably close to 1,000 pounds. That's 1,000 pounds more fuel you could uh, carry for going out on night missions. Because some of the B-25s actually had radar. Okay. Especially the Marine versions and you know had different types of radar early on in the ventral turret, later in the nose, and then later even out under the wing used you know for night interdiction. Mm-hmm. But for the longer range, get rid of some weight, add more fuel. And then there were some of the missions George Bartlett told me about. They would get up in the morning and have breakfast around dawn. The armorers and the crew chiefs would get the airplanes ready. They would go out on a mission. They would fly about 15 miles over to the next island. They would bomb and strafe the Japanese. They'd come back, refuel, rearm, load up more ammunition, more bombs, go over and bomb again, 
come back, go in the cruise hut while the crews rearm the airplane. They would have lunch, and they'd go back out and do it two more times in the afternoon. Oh, man. You know, some of the missions was just 15, 20 miles to the next island. Okay. If you look at the map and see where Okinawa was, 41st Bomb Group, when they set up operations there in the summer of 45, you know, they'd go out an hour or two. They were over target. They would drop their bombs and then go out, search and destroy, trying to find, you know, enemy shipping to strafe. Oh. Whatever. So some of the missions were six, seven, eight hours, search and destroy. Others, 10, 15 minutes out and back. That's pretty cool. And, you know, obviously we've been kind of focusing on the Pacific, but it was in the European theater as as well, right? It was. The Army Air Forces did not operate the B-25 in Europe itself, but the RAF did, the French did, you know, our allied countries did. We operated a B-25 in North Africa, Italy, Corsica, you know, et cetera. But in Europe itself, the 8th Air Force and later the 9th Air Force used the B-26 Marauder as their medium bomber, while the RAF and the French used the B-25. Did they call it anything different, or was it still just... Yeah, they called it the Mitchell, the Mitchell 1, Mitchell 2, Mitchell 3. Okay. There's an interesting thing about the B-25 also. It is the only aircraft in the United States history military history that has been named after a person, named after General Billy Mitchell. Oh, yeah. Who was such a strong proponent for aviation. Yeah. And wound up being court-martialed because he wouldn't control his uh, irreverence, I guess, the fact that... His passion. His passion, yes. The military at that time was ruled by the Navy. Yeah. And the battleship. And he was going to prove that the battleship was dead. And before the Japanese proved that at Pearl Harbor, he proved it right off of Norfolk when he sank a German battleship, you know, with just a couple of airplanes with a few bombs. But even after proving that, still, he was so outspoken, he wound up being court-martialed back from Brigadier General back to Colonel and wound up dying a broken man before he ever saw his predictions actually come to fruition. Yeah, no, he is obviously a major part of the Air Force's history, and it's kind of a sad story to have it end the way that it did. But I think throughout history, you you see some other examples of that as well. So, well, very good. So uh, obviously the Brits flew it. You said the French flew it. Do you have kind of a a running list of all the different places, or I I should say countries that that took over this aircraft? Argentina, Australia, Biafra, Bolivia, Brazil, Canada, Republic of China, (laughs) People's Republic of China, Chile, Colombia, Cuba, Dominican Republic, France, Indonesia, Mexico, Netherlands, Peru, Poland, Spain, Soviet Union, United Kingdom, and of course, the United States, Uruguay, and Venezuela. (laughs) There you go. That is a mouthful. So it is an airplane that is so easy to fly that it is very easy for allied countries whose pilots may not have the same level of experience and expertise and training that we had for them to learn to master the airplane. Yeah. You know, the B-26 Marauder with a real heavy wing loading was a handful. Remember the old saying, one a day in Tampa Bay? Uh-huh. Because McDill was a transition base. Guys were stalling them and crashing them right and left. The B-25 is an easy airplane to fly. I was surprised how easily I transitioned into it. But on the ground... That's what separates the men from the boys. (laughs) It's a free-castering nose wheel. Okay. And you can't use the brakes because the brakes are metal to metal. Bronze rotors, steel stators, 14 pair in each wheel. Yep. And if you try to taxi using brakes, one B-25 operator going to go unnamed, 
last year actually had a brake catch on fire and they almost lost the airplane because the pilot was taxing it using the brakes, dragging the brakes. Wow. You have to learn to taxi the airplane. It's a free casting nose wheel, but the rudders are in a slipstream. Okay. So easy to fly, but one heck of a thing to keep on the runway and to taxi it because you learn to taxi the airplane by using the rudder, the prop wash, differential thrust, very gentle differential thrust, and even to make your turns, to stop your turns, you're using it with thrust and rudders and using the brakes only when absolutely necessary. Wow. Yeah, we recorded the B-29 episode a few weeks ago with uh, Al Benzidi. I'm not sure if you know Al at all, but B-29, same thing, yep. free casting nose wheel, and it's a challenge for them as well. Obviously, it's a, a larger aircraft and whatnot, but maybe they have a different brake assembly. We didn't get into the specifics on the brakes. So it's kind of one of those you know nightmare situations, I guess, coming from military flying fighters and whatnot, the getting from parking to the runway and getting airborne was kind of the low stress, uh, low threat kind of environment because it's pretty standardized and same thing for coming back in after landing, but then transition to the airline industry. It's completely opposite. You know, the hardest thing is just getting to the runway. So I can under, I can appreciate maybe in some ways what that must be like. When we're training pilots here, you know, in our flight school, that's one of the most difficult things for them to master is the ground handling of the airplane. And even on the runway, handling the airplane, because there's no feedback in the brake. Okay. So if you get a little bit crooked in the runway on the takeoff roll and you apply a little brake to try to correct it and apply too much brake, yep. you wind up making the airplane dart off to the side and it could be very serious outcome. So you're having to untrain certain muscle memory when you're teaching how to fly the airplane. And another thing you have to learn to do, when you touch down on the runway, the brakes are for one thing and one thing only prevent you from rolling off the far end of the runway. (laughs) (laughs) I know of one fellow that owns a B-25 while he was doing his check ride, you know, his annual 6158 check ride, a 5,000 foot runway. Uh He landed right on the numbers, got the nose down, got on the brakes really hard to make the midfield turnoff. Okay. Now, why? I don't know, but he did. He got on the brakes really hard, got the airplane slowed down, made the midfield turn off, pulled into a tie-down spot, shut down, changed pilots. The other pilots can get in to fly his 6158 check, and the airplane would not move. Oh, no. The brakes had literally welded together. Oh, no. He put so much heat in the brake on that one braking episode, the bronze melted and fused to the stainless steel rotors. Oh, my goodness. The mechanic had to come out, jack the airplane, and change the brake packs before they could continue with their flying. That's a bad day. That's a real <laughs> bad day right there. Just for a point of reference, what kind of effort does that take to change the brakes on this aircraft? I've done it in right. 20 minutes. Okay. But that was when I was in a real hurry. Normally, it would take about an hour. Okay. One brake pack is mounted on the bottom of the strut. So when you remove the wheel, one brake pack is still attached to the airplane. You've got six, I think they're number seven bolts, you know, to take it loose. It's not as easy as changing the pads on a Cleveland disc brake, but the brake packs are heavy. They weigh 69 pounds a piece. So they're heavy. You're putting some serious effort in, I think it sounds like. This day and age, technology being what it is, it's kind of an afterthought, the brakes, other than, you know, maybe in the airline industry, we were conscious of it, but you're definitely slowing a lot more weight down than a fighter aircraft or even your car. You know, nobody really thinks about that, but I'm going to guess then we have uh, a listener 
that asked the question. And we'll talk about the Doolittle raid itself a little bit later. But were there any B-25s that attempted to land on a carrier in any of the testing or leading up to the raid itself? Well, not land on a carrier, no. Okay. You know, I don't know how much you want to get into the concept of the raid. This is more just a, you talked about okay. fusing the brakes and whatnot together based off that one break episode. So Once the concept of the raid was confirmed that it was probably doable by Jimmy Doolittle, it probably can do it with the B-25s. Yep. The Hornet was being outfitted down in Norfolk, so they loaded two B-25s with cranes onto the Hornet, took it out for a sea trial, launched both the B-25s who flew back to Norfolk and landed and proved that he could do it. But it was only after the war was there ever any attempt, because there's no tail hook, yep. and you know the tail of the airplane, no way in the world, was strong enough to arrest a 25,000-pound airplane. But there were some B-25s that were modified, and there were some trials with a cannon nose version, but it was only done in testing and never adopted. Okay. How would you, having your flying experience of the aircraft, would you feel comfortable attempting something like that? Sure. <laughs> you can try anything once. Well, it's, the airplane is a good short-field performing airplane. You can drag it in across the fence. There's no such thing as VMC because that concept came about after World War II, but they call it safe single engine speeds, 145 mile an hour. Okay. But that's you know safe single engine speed. Yeah. The airplane with flaps down stalls at about 88, 89 miles per hour. So you can drag the airplane in at about 100 mile an hour, really steep, Yeah. pull the nose up, touch it down on the mains, drop the nose and get on the brakes and get stopped pretty quickly. Yeah. So uh, I wouldn't be bashful about trying it on modern aircraft carrier. Sure. What about the old straight deck carriers? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe a little tight? Here was the problem with the old straight deck carriers in World War II. There's only six foot wingtip clearance from the right wingtip to the island. Yep. Six foot. You could deal with that for takeoff because all of the airplanes used on the raid, they took off midfield, right? Even with the island. The last airplane taken off did not have the full length of the deck. They all taxed it up and took off at the same spot, midfield, mid deck. Okay. The old carriers, the old straight deck carriers were too narrow. There was not enough room for an airplane with a 67 foot wingspan to land. Yeah, that definitely sounds a little bit sporty, at least definitely uncomfortable throughout the entire thing. So we covered the myriad of weapons that this thing will uh, employ during combat. Uh, We touched on uh, bombs, leaflet missions, anything like that during its time? Oh, I'm sure it was. I'm sure the RAF probably used it some uh, over Europe for dropping leaflets. Okay. Yeah, the 41st Bomb Group, yes, actually did, because Bill Miller told me about that. When they were running operations out of Okinawa or southern Kyoshu, uh-huh. there were some missions where they went out where some airplanes were equipped with bombs and some airplanes were equipped with just leaflets. And they'd have a target area where they go over just to distribute leaflets. Yeah. Because at that time, we were trying to get the civilian populace to get away from the cities before they were bombing them. You know, LeMay did that with the B-29s as well, telling everybody to get out of Tokyo. We're coming kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. Okay, Good. And you talked about rockets. I mean, this thing carries a ton of different options there. Flight performance. Let's jump into that. What are we talking for like a service ceiling and uh, max speed? And and then what would they kind of normally cruise around about? If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. 
Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, AirCore Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com slash careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com slash careers. Visit today. Well, service ceiling is 28,000 feet, but you got to use oxygen, you know, to be above 12. Yep. Many of the airplanes, you know, had oxygen systems in them for medium bombing because I think the military, anything above eight or 10,000 feet were required oxygen. You know, the B-25 and its evolution to what it really grew up to be, it grew up to be close air support. Okay. Oxygen systems were taken out. There was weight you didn't need. Service ceiling 28,000 feet, but 334 miles an hour, you know, was maximum speed. So it would get up and go. Yeah. Now down low, on many of these missions against Japanese airfields, for instance, or against troop emplacements, these were treetops. They were flying in with fragmentation bombs with little parachutes on them so that the airplane could get out of Dodge before the bombs blew up. I asked Bill Miller one time, I said, because I collected flight gear all my life, I said, what kind of flight gear did you wear on your missions over southern Japan back in 45? And he said, well, generally just our skivvies. <laughs> because it was so hot, they would get on board the airplane, they'd take the shirt and the trousers off, fold them up and put them over in a corner and just wear their underwear, a t-shirt and a box of shorts and the boots. <laughs> it was hot and humid and they were flying a low level and a bullet would pass through you where you had a shirt on or not. That's true. That's what he would say. <laughs> That's fair. You've obviously flown the aircraft. Ease to fly. You've, I think you've alluded to that. Pretty easy aircraft to fly around. In actual flight characteristics, it is. It's very easy to fly. The only thing that can be a little scary with it is there's a lot of torque and a lot of P-factor. So when you're doing stalls, and we have a contract with the Navy where we uh, will go out with, say, 20 students in a contract, and each one gets three stalls. So that's 60 stalls you got to do in one contract. Okay. But early on when we developed the test program, we actually pulled the airplane all the way into a stall to see what the recovery stall characteristics was. Uh-huh. The left wing breaks first, and when it does, within a few seconds, you're upside down and in a spin. Oh, boy. I would say that's one of the bad characteristics is it likes to break, and it'll enter a spin and a heartbeat. Yeah. And spins are prohibited maneuver in the airplane. But that's the only bad characteristics. Otherwise, the airplane is docile. It's easy to fly, relatively high wing loading. Uh-huh. Some people have a little trouble mastering touching on the mains and then lowering the nose wheel down. You can't three-point it you know, with the nose and the mains. You know, that was a new concept in 1939. Of having the nose gear? Yeah, having a nose gear. Yeah. You know, the B-24 was the first you know, real bomber with a nose wheel. The B-29 wasn't even thought of at that point. Yeah, yeah. B-17, you know, the uh, B-23. Tail dragger. Yeah. You know, of course, the B-26 was developed with a nose wheel, but again, free casting. Yeah. So the nose wheel was relatively new concept, and it wasn't all that strong. You've got to learn to touch on the mains and then lower the nose. And for that, it takes some people a little getting used to to get the nose high enough 
to uh, touch on the mains, lower the nose, and then use that big elevator in the back, hold it all the way back, and use that as an air brake to slow down. How high are you sitting, kind of eye level, when you're uh, on all three in the tricycle configuration? You're up about 10 feet. Okay. What is your normal kind of final approach speed that you're uh, using as a reference point? Or you guys do AOA, or how do you guys do that? Well, I'll just talk you through, you know, the power settings and your approach. You know, what we have developed in our airplane is as we approach the airport, we'll bring the airplane down to pattern altitude so that it'll start slowing down. Okay. Then we set up 2,100 RPM and 21 inches manifold pressure, and that'll give you 150 miles an hour indicated airspeed okay. through the downwind. And when you lower the landing gear without touching the power setting, simply lower the landing gear, it adds enough drag, it slows you to 135 miles per hour. Okay. You turn the base leg, you add half flaps, maintain 135 mile an hour, do not touch the power, maintain 135 mile an hour, put your 500 foot per minute descent. Then you turn final, the angle of approach is more like five or six degrees, not the three degree angle of approach, which freaks out some people initially. Yeah. And when you go full flaps, the nose pitches down a good bit. Again, you maintain 135 miles per hour. You start to feel a shudder in the yoke, like a stick shaker would do. Okay. Because it's the turbulence from the flaps. When you go full of flaps, there's a turbulence hitting the elevator. So 135 mile an hour, still the same power setting. We've not touched the power yet. You come in just about treetop level. You start to bring the nose up. The airplane will start slowing down rapidly because the flaps are in 45 degrees of flaps. You start to slowly roll the power off, and while the airplane continues to settle, you use pitch then to arrest the descent, to slow the descent so that you touch on the mains with the nose up, so you don't start rolling power off that 21 inches, 2100 RPM until you're entering the flare at about treetop level. Man, describing the process is obviously a lot more thought intensive than executing it real time. I think obviously you've got enough experience at this point. It's probably more second nature than anything, but it sounds like, you know, a relatively beastly aircraft to actually do all of that in there. Is it control wise? Is it light or heavy in the controls at that point? Well, the controls are not balanced at all. Okay. Elevator throughout is very light. Aileron is very heavy. Okay. Rudders are quite light. So only in modern-day airplanes do you have you know, balanced control forces, as they say. But flying the airplane, for instance, when I fly my air show demo, you know, we will fly uh, the airplane demonstrating bombing, skip bombing, strafing, everything within the length of the runway. When I get out of the airplane, sometimes my arms are quivering because it takes everything I've got you know, on the ailerons to horse that airplane around. There are no boosted controls. There's no hydraulic boost. There's no aerodynamic tabs. It is straight arm strong. However strong your <laughs> arms are, that's how much boost you got. That's what you got. All right. Nice. It's all cables and bell cranks and pulleys. Are you working with the co-pilot to help pull? Or are you asking or coordinating that? Not in that situation, no. You could, okay. but I figure if I got to get the co-pilot to help me out in an air show demo, I'm beyond my limits and I don't want to get there. Yeah. The yeah. co-pilot has got his duties at that point and is watching all of the temperatures, watching all of the indications. Our crew chief is sitting in the jump seat right behind us as the one looking out for birds, looking out for some idiot in an ultralight to fly through <laughs> the pattern, which happened to me one time. Uh-huh. 
I'm in about an 80 degree bank angle turning, you know, come in for a bomb run. And I'm looking eyeball to eyeball with an ultralight coming through Nordo in the pattern during the middle of an air show. Oh, nice. But fortunately, my spotter started screaming, you know, airplane, airplane, airplane. And of course, you don't tell me where it is. You stick your arm down between me and the co-pilot and you point when there's a bird or something. Yeah. And he was pointing at an ultralight. So you know, we real quickly was able to take, you know, evasive action. <laughs> but no, I'd never ask for assistance, but I tell you, it's a workout. I don't climb right out of the airplane when I land. I sit there for a minute and, and rest. <laughs> Take a moment. Nice. One very, very important point. I want to make sure your listeners are here here. Yeah. We never exceed two Gs. Okay. That was my next question. I have an accelerometer in the instrument panel. We never exceed two Gs. Okay. Well within the limits of the airplane. It's all a matter of managing the momentum, managing the mass, and keeping the airplane moving. It's not a matter of overstressing it. It's a matter of keeping it moving. Was that accelerometer, was that originally part of the aircraft, or is that something that's been added after the fact? No, I've added that because of what we do you know, with the airplane. Okay. And that goes right in line with uh, one of our uh, listeners' questions. John Frund asked, what are some of the considerations that you guys take or quirks that you guys have to be aware of when we're flying a 70-plus-year-old aircraft? And do you guys push the aircraft and fly it like it was done in combat, or are you being cautious for long-term? No, let me explain. That's one thing I do in, in our safety brief when we're briefing our pilots and in our school. Yeah. We have taken the edges of the envelope and we moved them in. Okay. You know, I saw a sign hanging over the door to the uh, briefing room in a B-52 outfit one time, and it said, there's no reason to take an airplane in a thunderstorm in peacetime. Yeah. Well, there's no need to take a 75-year-old airplane and try to take it to the limits, G-loads or any of the other limits. As an example, gear speed is published 170 miles per hour indicated. We use 150 mile an hour as maximum. Okay. Same thing for maximum flap speeds. Everything, we have moved the edges of the envelope in a little bit. There's no need to. We're not in a combat situation. I don't have to worry about taking the airplane to its absolute limits. Yeah. It's smart. I mean, like anything, there's a level of risk associated with anything you do, for sure. All of our loading, all of our speeds, our Bombay operating speeds, our V&E, we limit our V&E to 250 miles an hour. It's placarded 334 miles an hour. Why would I need to go more than 250 miles an hour? Yeah. And rarely, rarely am I ever above 220, even when we're doing dive bombing and strafing in the air shows. Somebody in the audience is not going to know where you're doing 200 miles an hour or 230 or 240 miles an hour. Yep. So we limited everything. We moved all the edges of the envelope in, in deference to the fact that I'm almost as old as the airplane, too. (laughs) (laughs) We won't blame you or anything else for that limitation on this aircraft. I think that's probably the best and smartest way to operate. So I think that's the right way to do business. One of the other listeners, uh, Joe Kunzer, had asked about, he's seen the aircraft in action and, and in museums and all that kind of stuff. Not that you've flown the F-15 or the F-18 or anything you know current, but what is the power state like? Is it sufficiently powered? Is it underpowered? And obviously, you aren't flying on the original engines necessarily, but... Uh, yeah, the engines we're flying are exactly the same engines that they flew into combat in World War II. Okay. Here's the difference. I'm sitting on the ramp empty right now at just shy of 20,000 pounds. My bombs are fiberglass. My machine guns are aluminum. Okay? Okay. When I load this airplane up with full crew, full fuel, 
we're still over 10,000 pounds below the weights that these guys were flying them in World War II. Okay? Okay. So at the weights that we're flying the airplane, it's a hot rod. <laughs> okay. If I was bombing it up and loading it up to 38,000 pounds, yeah. you know, 12, 13, 14,000 pounds more than what I'm flying it at, I'm sure it may have been a little bit of a dog. It may have climbed a little bit slower. Okay. You know, you look at the B-17s going out of the bases in England during World War II. Yeah. They're climbing at maybe 100 foot per minute. <laughs> yeah, it was slow. They're not rocketing up anywhere. So anyway, yeah, this airplane, it'll climb 1,000 foot per minute in a heartbeat. Okay. For a bomber, pretty good. That sounds like a rocket ship for sure. Well, let's see. Transitioning, uh, obviously... We've talked through the aircraft, the different variants that we've had, you know, throughout the ages, the weapons and everything else like that. It's been around for a while, obviously. What is, you know, maybe a movie or other, you know, instances of things that we've seen this aircraft in action, uh, whether it be a remake or, or documentaries or anything like that, that you might, you know, I think you mentioned uh, 30 Seconds Over Tokyo. Anything else out there that the listeners might be able to go take a look at and get to see the aircraft? Well, sort of a fun movie would be Catch-22. Okay, yeah. Many of the B-25s that are still flying were airplanes that were saved because they were pretty much pulled out of junkyards and made airworthy for the movie Catch-22 back in the 70s. Okay. Because they had 17 B-25s that they used for making of that movie. And some of them were pretty ragged at the time, but they were put together and flown for the movie and still flying You know, ever since. Catch-22 is an interesting movie. It's sort of a farce, but it's fun. 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, anyone who's interested in B-25 should watch that movie. I'm not saying this, but the historians have said it's one of the most accurate of the movies that came out of World War II. Okay. Written by Ted Lawson, who was the pilot of a number seven airplane. The one that took off with the flaps up and still made it. Nice. Yep. Not recommended. Oh, not recommended, but uh, <laughs> when airplane number six, remember now, they were in a storm. They were taking water over the deck. Yeah. Airplane number six was bringing up to takeoff power. Ted was parked right behind them. They'd completed the checklist. Flaps were down full. Oh. Now, 45 degrees of flaps is a lot of flaps, right? Yeah. The airplane in front of you is going up to 2,600 RPM. He's putting out a lot of wind. You got rubber tires on a wooden deck. Aircraft carrier decks were wood. What happens to wood when it gets wet? It gets slippery. Ted had his brakes locked. Then Davenport was looking at the right window to line them up with white lines that was painted on the deck. Ted raised the flaps because he was being pushed backwards, even with his brakes locked, Ooh. by the airplane in front of him. So to reduce the sail effect, S-A-I-L effect, yeah. yep. Ted raised the flaps. Dean Davenport said he didn't know it. Oh, so in the excitement then, airplane number six takes off. They're flagged by the flagman up into the takeoff position. Lawson forgot to put the flaps back down. Davenport didn't know that the flaps were up because they'd already completed the checklist up to takeoff. Yep. And so here they get flagged off, and no one on the ground, the Navy ground crew didn't notice, didn't flag them. So now Ted takes off, flaps up. And he's the one, if you've ever seen the, the movies that were shot, you know, of the airplanes taking off, uh -huh. he goes off the end of the aircraft carrier and drops below the deck and you can't see him. Yeah. And then for several seconds, you don't see anything and you slowly see him climbing out in slow flight, flaps up. Creeping up there. I'm Air Force guy. never touched an aircraft carrier beyond a, a museum and I still don't understand what they're thinking. <laughs> Even a properly configured aircraft, let alone one that's not. So, man, that's crazy. 
Well, cool. Yeah, those are definitely some good movies that are worth checking out if uh, if the listeners haven't listened or seen those. Absolutely worth checking out. And I think that's a great lead-in to uh, a discussion on the Doolittle Raid itself. We got the initial outset there, and we talked about some of the early stage planning. You know, very light touch on that. Anything else you want to add on kind of the, the lead-up to actually putting airplanes on the carrier deck? Well, a few misconceptions we can probably clear up right away. Yeah. What's called the Doolittle Raid you know, from his namesake, Colonel Jimmy Doolittle, mm-hmm. was not Doolittle's idea. No. It was a Navy captain named Lowe who first thought of the idea because Roosevelt was demanding from all of the military that someone find a way to strike back in the Japanese homeland after Pearl Harbor. Definitely, yeah. Of course, the first attempt was B-17s out of China. That's how uh, Bob Scott, he wrote to God as my co-pilot, that's how he got to uh, China was flying one of the B-17s. But, you know, that didn't work out. Japanese had taken so much land, it was out of the range of the B-17. So Captain Lowe saw some medium bombers doing takeoff landings over the painted aircraft carrier deck down in Norfolk Naval Airfield. Okay. Because that's what they did in the day. There were no catapults then. So you would paint the outline of an aircraft carrier on an airfield, and that's how they would practice carrier takeoffs. Yeah. He saw these medium bombers doing takeoff landings. He was on his way to Washington for a meeting with Admiral King. So at the end of his meeting with Admiral King, he suggested, Admiral, you know, Roosevelt's wanting some way to strike back. I had this idea. I saw this. Admiral King, who was sort of gruff, it's, you know, so just don't say anything to anybody about that. So the next day, he goes to Hap Arnold, tells Hap Arnold the idea. If something like this is possible, it take Army bombers and launch them off of a Navy aircraft carrier. Remember, the Army and the Navy at that time were almost at war with each other. They didn't cooperate for anything. Yeah. So Hap Arnold said, I don't know, but I know who will. Harry Arnold's good friend, who he had flown with in World War One, was Jimmy Doolittle. Jimmy Doolittle at the time was not only the most famous pilot in the world from all the racing, you know, in the 30s, and he had rejoined the Army Air Corps with the commissioned lieutenant colonel. So Harry Arnold goes to Jimmy Doolittle. What most people also don't know, Jimmy Doolittle by then had earned the first Ph.D. in aeronautics from MIT. Oh, so not only was he the most famous pilot in the world, he's a pretty smart dude too. Yeah. So he goes to Jimmy Doolittle first and says, Jimmy, can we take Army bombers, take off in 500 foot, carry a 1,000-pound bomb load, and then I think the total range was 1,200 miles. Doolittle come back and says, yeah, you can do it with the B-23. You can do it with the B-25. And Harry Arnold said, well, from an aircraft carrier where that limit is wingspan. Doolittle at that point said, well, the only airplane you can do that is a B-25. That's when the two B-25s were taken down to Norfolk, put on the Hornet, taken out for the trial, and prove that it worked. So at that point, the only outfit that was already combat-ready, there was no time to train up pilots for this mission, yeah. was the 17th Bomb Group. So the call went out to the 17th Bomb Group for volunteers, not told what it was going to be. All they were told was going to be a dangerous mission, take you out of the country for a couple of months. We expected heavy casualties, and for that reason, it was going to be volunteer only. Every man in the group volunteered, including the wing commander, the group commander. Okay. So they go to Eglin Air Force Base where they start training. And toward the end of training, Doolittle was only supposed to train this mission. He was technically too old to fly combat. He was 46 years old. Okay. He was not supposed to be on the mission. Toward the end of the training, one of the pilots who was being trained developed an ulcer. Obviously pulled him off a of flight duel. Doolittle saw his chance. So he prepared his speech. He got himself ready. He's going to go see his good friend, his closest personal friend, Hap Arnold. He goes to Washington. He goes into Hap Arnold's office and says, Hap, 
you know, I've trained these men and nobody knows this mission any better than I do. And Hap stops him and says, Jimmy, do you want to lead the raid? Well, Doolittle smelled a skunk right away. <laughs> said, well, Hap, anybody doubts this, this is on YouTube and Doolittle's words. Okay. He smelled a skunk right away because he knew Hap Arnold was not going to risk his skills and his knowledge base against a raid where they expected 50% casualties. Yeah. But his friend was not going to deny him. His friend, Harp Arnold, was not going to deny him. So Arnold says, no, sir. Arnold says, well, if it's okay with Harm, General Harmon, his, his exec, it's okay with me. Doolittle right then. He's a pretty smart dude. <laughs> he saluted right away. Yes, sir. He stepped back, stepped out of General Arnold's office, ran down the hallway to General Harmon's office, bolted in past his secretary, opened the door where General Harmon was sitting, startled General Harmon. Frightened him. And he says, Harm, Hap says it's okay if I lead the mission, if it's okay with you. Well, General Harmon says, well, if General Arnold says superior. Yep. If it's okay with Hap, I guess it's okay with me. Yes, sir. Thank you. And he <laughs> bolted out of the office. And as he left the office, he heard General Harmon's intercom. But Hap, he said, you said it was okay. <laughs> so with that, now, here's an important point. Doolittle was really too valuable to risk on a raid like that. Yeah. But these two men had given their word, and they didn't renege on that. Wow. Can you imagine that in today's world? They would not renege on that. So Jimmy was allowed to actually lead the raid that he planned. And then when he's sitting on the wreckage of his airplane in China, after he, and his, he had ordered bailing out of his crew, and he'd bailed out, by the next day he met up with most of his crew, he meets Paul Leonard, and they walk up to the top of the mountain. Doolittle is sitting there on his airplane. He expected to be court-martialed. Yep. He said, I've lost my entire command. I don't know where anybody is. They're scattered all over eastern China. He thought the mission was of no success. Yep. And he knew he was going to be court-martialed. And Paul Leonard said, no, sir, they're going to give you the Medal of Honor. First thing Paul said was, no, they're going to promote you to Brigadier General. They're going to make you a general. <laughs> well, no, Paul, I know you're just trying to make me feel good, but I'll be court-martialed over this. And Paul said, no, sir. And they're going to give you the Medal of Honor. <laughs> Within a couple of days later, both had happened. Doolittle was promoted to Brigadier General. He was ordered home. He was awarded with the Medal of Honor, which he accepted for his boys. Yeah. And Paul Leonard sitting there, the other thing that he said that Doolittle always said was the most important thing he ever said was, Paul Leonard said, and sir, when you get your next command, I'd be honored to be your crew chief. Well, later when Doolittle was in North Africa, that actually happened. You know, Doolittle is commanding the Air Forces then, you know, in North Africa. Uh -huh. He'd gone into town for a meeting with other commanders. Germans came over, attacked the airfield. And when they went out to the airfield, the only thing they could find left of Paul Leonard was a piece of his arm with his wristwatch. Paul had gotten into B-25, turned on the batteries, operated the electric bending turrets until he ran out of ammunition, abandoned yep. the airplane, went and started manning a ground-based 50-caliber machine gun until he took a direct hit from a German bomb. Oh, wow. And Doolittle always said that bothered him more than any other loss of anybody was losing Paul Leonard. Oh, my gosh. What a story. Just what an amazing bit of connection for spanning years of combat and everything else. And it really does really show it's more than just coworkers. It's a brotherhood and it's your family. It is an impressive piece of history that you're able to share. Thank you so much. Larry. That's great. 
you know, there's obviously a bunch of other stories and, and everything else that are out there. I know there's the Pearl Harbor movie. More recently, the Midway please, movie came out. Please <laughs> do not encourage anybody to watch the Pearl Harbor movie. The Doolittle Raiders that were attending the advanced showing of that on the deck of the USS Missouri uh-huh. got up and walked off. Nice. It is so bad. The only thing that is even any resemblance to the Doolittle Raid was the name, the Doolittle Raid. That was a terrible portrayal of what could have been a more decent portrayal of what the Doolittle Raid was about. Except there was one thing that was brought out, I think a little bit in that movie, and uh, somewhat in 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, but was the atrocities of the Japanese as a result. Yeah. The Japanese had been humiliated now. American bombers overflying the Emperor's Palace and bombing the capital. Yeah. Their military leaders were actually humiliated. So they went on a rampage in China trying to find the raiders. Eight were captured. They were taken to Japan. Three were shot with a firing squad. Five were imprisoned. At the end of the war, it was determined that conservatively, a quarter of a million Chinese civilians were massacred brutally by the Japanese and reprisal for the Chinese assisting the raiders after the raid to evade the, the Japanese troops. A quarter of a million civilians. Wow. Quarter of a million. Entire villages rounded up, put in a building, a building put on fire. That's, uh, I can't fathom that. And other things we can't really mention on a broadcast, but if you can imagine the atrocities of murdering children in front of their parents, it went on throughout southeastern China as a reprisal against the Chinese assisting the raiders. So the raiders have always held the Chinese people. We're not talking about governments. Sure, sure. The raiders have always held the Chinese people in the highest of esteem, even to the point that just a couple of years ago at the American Veterans Center, when there was only one raider left, he wanted to make it special to have a special presentation to the people of China as a thank you for what they did in April of 1942, how the people of China saved 69 of them. Wow. That's great. That's a real class act, and it is a real touching way to commemorate those experiences. Right now, the head of the Chinese Air Force, I forget the general's name right now, he has a model signed by Dick Cole in his office that sits on his desk, a B-25 model. Oh, wow. In Beijing. No kidding. I know that because I gave it to him. And uh, his adjutant wrote me a letter with a picture of it. It says that's where the general keeps it. It's on his desk. Oh, very cool. So that you never forget how people can be friends. That's great. Well, let's see. Let's get back a little bit to the aircraft. And we have all those uh, you know, amazing stories from history and the movies and, and everything else like that. But in your experiences and talking to the, the guys that flew it in combat and everything else, instead of doing more of like a strengths and weaknesses kind of thing, really, it's just what do you find as its best characteristics and what are some of the worst ones or things that you would, if you had a bunch of money that you could spend on fixing, what would you want to do? Sound deadening. <laughs> <laughs> it is the noisiest cockpit of World War II. Okay. Bar none, you'll find that in many reference books. I have lost substantial hearing in my left ear because of it before David Clark came out with their their A20 headsets, which has saved what left I had of hearing. But noise canceling, anything to make it a little quieter. Yeah. That's its shortcoming. It's loud. I tell you what, I tell people how to describe it. 
imagine you go outdoors and you get your metal garbage can. Okay. And you get your two neighbors and two jackhammers, and you put that metal garbage can over your head, and you put a jackhammer on each side of that, <laughs> and they start running the jackhammers. That's how the sensation. You don't just hear it. You feel the thumping. Oh. 3,400 horsepower just a couple of feet from me with short exhaust stacks that are just pounding the side of the airplane like a timpani drum. <laughs> so noise. That's what I would do. Handling-wise, though, the airplane is an easy airplane to handle. It's a handful to learn to taxi it. Maybe some nose wheel steering would be a nice addition if possible. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Once you master it, it's really, today it doesn't bother me at all. I don't even really notice it because it's become muscle memory uh, on taxiing the airplane. Yeah. It's just one of those things you got to learn. It's hard to learn. Okay. Were there any variants, more like the DV or the VIP converted ones? Did they have any soundproofing or anything like that? I haven't flown any, so I don't know, but I'm sure they did. I'm sure they added what they could to them. Okay. You talk about sound deadening. I asked Bill Miller one time, I said, how can you hear anything? Because on a Bendix turret, you're sitting with your head sighting. Your head is right between two fifty caliber guns. Six inches from either ear is the receiver of a fifty caliber Browning M2 machine gun. <laughs> Now, you've been in the military, you've probably been on a range where you've seen a, or heard a, a 50 caliber M2. The M2 Brownings are still in active use. Uh-huh. Imagine how loud they are. Now, with no hearing protection, you've got a Browning Modus, as they call them, six inches from each ear. That just sounds like a bad idea. <laughs> okay. So, sound deadening would be good. Nose wheel steering would be good. But otherwise, the airplane's really good. The, the executive transport versions, Yeah, I'm sure they probably did add what sound did and it could be added at the time. Yeah, I would think so. Plus also the compartment that Arnold flew in is the Bombay area. Okay. The loudest part of the airplane is right up where we're sitting, right in between the two engines. Sure. Okay. So it's not as bad when you go a little further back in the airplane. Okay. What would you consider, you know, your favorite aspect of it? Just the flying handling characteristics or is there anything else you really like about it? Well, I guess you could say being a student of history, to me, every time I climb in that airplane, you know, it's the nostalgia of thinking how many young men made that climb into that seat and didn't climb out of it. Yeah. And I never forget that. It's a very vivid, vivid image, I'm sure, you know, to do it real time and just hearing it in your voice, I think our listeners can can appreciate what that means to you. The founder of Warbirds of America, Walt Ulrich, who was a Navy commander, actually flew A-4s with McCain in Vietnam. Uh Walt Ulrich, you know, said, we are but temporary custodians of these icons of our military history. We owe it to today's generations and future generations to operate them safely and continue to tell the story of all the young men that gave the ultimate sacrifice. Definitely. So the majority of those of us in the Warbird movement that still operate these airplanes live by that. And believe that there's a few wahoos out there. There's a few show offs <laughs> out there, but sure, the majority of us have that very, very strong connection to the veterans that saved the world from tyranny with these airplanes. Yeah, these were the tools that the carpenter used to build a house to save the world. That is deep stuff. I love it. That is so great. Well, Larry, anything else that you think we should know, kind of about the aircraft itself, and uh, you know, you can talk about Panchito yeah. if there's anything special about it. Well, you mentioned earlier about operating cost. 
Oh, yeah. You know, we have an LHFE, Living History Flight Exemption, where we can offer you know, flight experiences in the aircraft to people, you know, for a fee. Okay. And you have to get an exemption to do that because it's a limited category airplane. And the FAA, you know, imposes upon us certain maintenance and training restrictions, you know, to do it. But anyway, we charge $425 a seat to fly the airplane. Somebody not long ago said, well, I don't want to buy the thing. I said, well, let me give you an idea what it costs to fly this airplane. Yeah. Each brake pack has 14 rotors. There's four brake packs on the airplane. A rotor now costs $135, and I got 28 of them in each wheel. So every year or so, I have to replace 56 of those at $135 a piece. Oh, boy. Now, that's that. A tire, two tires, two tubes, and mounting is $13,500. And you get maybe one season out of a set of tires. Okay. An engine overhaul right now is $100,000. If you can get 1,000 hours out of an engine, that's really good. Prop overhauls running about $10,000 every five years. You handle the standard prop AD. Okay. Shall I continue? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not uh, sitting here tallying up the cost, but I can imagine we're well over at least $20,000 at this point. You're looking at about $2,500 an hour just to simply operate the airplane. Yeah. We have multiple sources of revenue. There's some donations that come in, people that just yep. believe in what we do. Yep. We have one fellow that sends us $10,000 every year just because he believes in what we're doing. We have the Living History Flight Exemption where we can sell rides at events, which we do both here and at other events. But what has saved us through this whole pandemic thing is our flight school. Okay. We have, to my knowledge, I don't know of anybody else that has a completely self-contained, I believe we are the only one, self-contained all the way through the examiner for pilot training in the B-25 all the way through a full type rating. Instructors, examiner, ground school, flight school, everything is all in, you know, on staff, in-house. So anybody that wants to come either to just get an hour of dual instruction in the B-25 or all the way through a full type rating. Yep. Or a second command rating, which you can do in just a long weekend. Okay. Or if you're just an enthusiast, you know, a non-aviation enthusiast who just wants to come the first day of all of these classes, whether it's be a second command rating, a full type rating, whatever is a full eight hour, usually runs into be about nine hours, ground school, mm -hmm. where you learn everything you need to know about the airplane, its systems, a lot of it is hands-on. Part of it is me at what I call my show-and-tell table, yep. where I'll show how things work. You know, when you're priming the carburetor for start, what are you doing? How does that work? I show them how it works. I show them what the failure modes are. I show them how your pressure system works for oil pressure. What do you do if you're flying along 9,000 feet and you look down and your right engine showing 40 pounds of oil pressure? Do you cage the engine? Do you feather the engine? Not necessarily. Yep. You may have a simple indication problem. So I show the pilots how to determine, do you have an indication problem or do you have a real problem? Call ATC, ask for 2,000-foot descent. Descend 2,000 feet, oil pressure comes up 10 PSI. You know, oh, you got an indication problem. And I teach people how that transmitter will do that, and that's how you determine do you have a real problem or not. So our ground school is not only just classroom, it's a lot of hands-on time with the airplane as well. We've got a class next weekend, for instance. We have four pilots coming to get a second command rating. We have six people that's coming in ground school. The ground school is the same for everybody. 
where we have two people who are non-pilots who are coming just to take the ground school. They just want to know more about the B-25, like your listeners. They want to know more about the airplane. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, where can uh, the listeners go and find any information on uh, the flight training programs, kind of the history of your organization, all that kind of stuff? Well, all of it is all DelawareAviationMuseum.org. Okay, perfect. DelawareAviationMuseum.org. There's phone numbers on there. There's email addresses on there. There's a lot of great pictures you can download. Okay. All the pictures we've had on our website are available. They're not copyrighted protected. People have gave us the use of the pictures. Don't use them commercially for anything. Sure. But if you want a neat screensaver of a B-25 coming right at you, you can download it off the website. <laughs> there we go. Nice. You mentioned uh, kind of in the intro that you had a bunch of other aircraft out there. Do you offer training in any of those other aircraft or is it just the B-25 program? Right now, we are waiting for a uh, approval from the FAA to be able to do some flight training in our Tiger Moth okay. and in our Chipmunk. We are considering offering uh, tailwheel instruction in the L-19 or the L-16, but we're not doing that right now. You just watch the website for that. Right now, what we are doing, if anybody wants to fly the L-16 or the L-19, because they're both standard category airplanes, mm -hmm. anybody that's signing up for our pilot training, either SIC or PIC, will also throw in, at no cost, uh, a little time in the L-19 or the L-16 at their choice. Next weekend, we got three of the guys that are going to take uh, an L-19 checkout, and one of them is taking the L-16 checkout. Oh, very cool. All that money is going to a good cause, not only for personal development and whatnot, but uh, keeping those planes in the air and the B-25 flying around. Uh, but speaking of that, you guys obviously fly that aircraft uh, for the training program. Do you guys take it to air shows and, and everything else? Oh, yeah. We're based in Georgetown, Delaware, but we travel pretty much anywhere east of the Mississippi. It just gets too costly to go. <laughs> I had the folks from Elmendorf asked me to come to their air show, and I said, okay, well, let me give you a cost of what it would take to get me to Elmendorf. And you know what that is. <laughs> yes, it's a hike. So when I showed them the cross-country cost to get to Elmendorf and back, I said, now, allow me to find you an airplane on the West Coast that you can get up there to your air show in a more reasonable cost. But, Smart. <laughs> so we're basically on the East Coast. We do go take it to Oshkosh just about every year, uh, EAA. I've done a lot of work with Dennis Dunbar over the years and other EAA folks, Warbirds of America. So we participate with them. We've done a number of Warbirds and review programs, which I think some of that's available on the Warbridge website and or on Sleeping Dogs Productions websites. Okay. We've also used the airplane a good bit for a photo platform. In about a half hour, I can take the whole tail gun position off. We can put a videographer and a still photographer back there. We just did that a couple of weeks ago for the Arsenal of Democracy flight. We were the photo flight or the photo platform. So with the photographers from the AOPA on board, we first had a flight of five Mustangs pulling behind us. And then when they pulled out, we had two Corsairs pulled in on us. They left. We had two C-47s on us for photos. And then after that, the uh, P-51s had rejoined the two B-29s, and we had the formation of P-51s and the two B-29s in formation behind us. I don't think we'll ever see those pictures made again. No way. So no. if you can see some of those on the AOPA's website and in upcoming editions of the magazine coverage about the Arsenal of Democracy, you'll see some of Josh and Chris's photos and video. Well, on the magazine, you'll see the photos. 
some really one-of-a-kind stuff, but we've done a lot of air-to-air photo. We've done the Sunrise Sorties as the photo platform at Oshkosh, where I'd choreographed different groups. We did that for, I think, three or four years. So if you can find on YouTube or other sources the Sunrise Sorties, you see some pretty neat video that we shot. That's amazing. You know, obviously, you've traveled around a bit. You've done, uh, I think, from looking at... uh your resume, you've got the Super Bowl, Indy 500, multiple NASCAR races, all that kind of good stuff. So it's definitely got some FaceTime out there for the world to see. That's great. I'll tell you, I don't think there's anything. Well, you as a fighter pilot can understand this. Being over a certain fixed point on the ground yep. at a one particular second, at an exact second in the future, they want you over that spot. Uh-huh. You know how to do that, right? <laughs> yeah, in uh, theory. <laughs> well, we pulled it off at the Super Bowl when we started our run-in from uh, nine miles out. They pushed us back 15 seconds twice on our run-in. Okay. And we hit our revised TOT over the 50-yard line because they were introducing a bunch of World War II veterans on the field. Yeah. We hit our revised TOT within three seconds. Oh, that's great. And then when we did the Indy 500 flyover, formation of two B-25s, we crossed the starting line exactly to the second on time at 230 miles an hour. Man, you guys are nailing it. So we pulled that one off, and we've done some more similar things, you know, for some NASCAR flights, the Preakness race in Baltimore. But there's a several things that we have done, which we reach down in our own pocket, and we do for no reimbursement. When Bill Bauer died, he was the last command pilot of the Doolittle Raid, and we were asked by the family to fly over his internment at Arlington. Yep, And that's a whole nother program to talk about being the first civilians to fly in that airspace after 9-11, but we were able to do it. We flew over his internment at Arlington. We'll be flying over Dick Cole's internment next April. We have done flyovers for some other veterans. You know, the two veterans, Sizemore and uh, get the other guy's name, two guys that grew up together, trained together, flew together, died together in Vietnam, and their bodies were found together in the wreckage of the airplane, were buried together side by side at Arlington. Oh, man. We did a flyover for their internment with several other warbirds, and several of the Doolittle Raiders, we've taken the airplane you know, cross-country to participate in uh, their burials. Yep. You mentioned, uh, we talked about Catch-22. Uh-huh. Those that have remember the movie, the character Yosarian, it was a Joseph Heller who wrote that book, which was the inspiration for the movie. Joseph Heller was a B-25 pilot in Italy in World War II, so his experiences were where he drew from to write the book, Catch-22. Yeah, Catch-22. His character, Yosarian, was a compilation from his original bombardier navigator, who was Frank Yohannan, from Assyrian, Assyrian background. Uh-huh. Hence the name Yosarian. With the real Frank Yohannan, Flew not only as a navigator bombardier in B-25s in World War II, he flew in two other wars, in Korea and in Vietnam. And in Vietnam, he was flying combat in B-52s with his son in the same outfit, B-52 outfit. Oh, my gosh. But when Frank died, the family contacted us to fly over his internment. So we did that at Gettysburg, of all places. He was the last burial at Gettysburg. Oh, wow. A number of years ago. The real Yosarian. That's amazing stuff. You're an absolute wealth of knowledge, and we've been talking for a while here, and I want to be definitely respectful of your time, but man, you are just an amazing treasure, Larry. Don't ever change. You are fantastic. (laughs) Can I record (laughs) that and play that back for my wife? (laughs) All you want. I will let you know when this is coming out, and you can uh, can play that every day. Well, Larry, I'm going to start wrapping this up here, but we'll make sure that we have as much of this 
data that you've talked about so that we can get the word out for you guys, get people out there to see Panchito in real life, both up in Delaware for the flight training programs and then uh, out on the road when you guys take the aircraft out to the different events and whatnot. We publish our schedule on the website so you can always know where we are and what we're doing. Perfect. No, that's great. As we start to end the show, before we let you go, we always have one kind of question that we like to uh, ask our guests, and that is, what is your call sign if you have one? And uh, if you're willing to share, you know, kind of the PG, PG-13 level, what might it be? I was not in the military. Okay. I was trained as a civilian pilot. I have about 6,000 hours flying ex-military aircraft, ironically. Yeah. But I have always left that up to those of you like yourself <laughs> that are the real thing that really did fly in the military. And for that, sir, I thank you for your service. But my father, you know, was a World War II veteran. He served nearly three years in the jungles in New Guinea and uh, the Philippines. So the call signs I will leave for you guys who are the real thing. Uh, we're just goofing around, but I do appreciate that. And I appreciate everything that you've, you've obviously shared with us today and the care and the love that you have for all of those Doolittle Raiders, you know, the aircraft, the history and everything that you've talked about and lived throughout your life. I appreciate every bit of that. So thank you for coming on the show and being willing to share that with our listeners. I know they appreciate it. And I think you are the epitome of class and I appreciate everything that you uh, have shared with us today. With all of that, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. Larry, again, thank you for your time today and uh, keeping history alive with uh, Panchito and all the rest of the yeah. <laughs> aircraft you have out there. Well, we're certainly not making any money at it. We're going into the hole every year, more and more and more. But, you know, it's like I tell some of my friends sometimes, they say, well, why do you keep taking all the losses? Why do you keep doing all that? I said, well, when I'm sitting on the front porch and I can't get out of that rocking chair, I want to be able to say at least I did what I could. So that's all anybody can ask. And, and as long as you can, at the end of the day, live with yourself for the efforts you've put in, which I think you have gone above and beyond uh, 99% of this world. I think that's the right way to live. And and for our listeners at home that want to support your efforts, Larry, they can, uh, again, visit www.delawareaviationmuseum.org, and that'll be in the uh, show notes, so everybody can click directly to that. Definitely visit, invest through uh, the flight training program, donate, go visit the shows when they're out on the road, and everything else. Well, as one of your competitors say, come fly with us. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. All right, Larry. Well, for all of us here at the uh, show, thank you once again. And for uh, Larry Panchita, the B-25, this is uh, Boat signing off for uh, Bomber Month 2020. We'll look to do this again next year in 2021. And with that, Jello, back to you. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com. Or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content, check out our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and subscribe to the show. And don't forget to share us with your network. Thank you for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University.
National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.